Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 21 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode, it's going to be just a little bit difficult to figure out exactly which stuff does matter. There is a laundry list of issues swirling around the game at the moment. We've got everything from the debate over single-sex golf clubs. Should golf clubs that have this policy be allowed to host major championships? There's a growing public rift between the PGA of America and the RNA in Scotland. Vijay Singh admitted to taking banned substances, but he's not going to be penalised by the tour. Greg Norman thinks that the testing policies are disgrace. There's a 14-year-old making cuts on the US tour. And Peter Torson thinks that perhaps the rules of golf might be simplified. This list goes on and on. So let me uh, introduce my guests for today. Very exciting stuff. We'll be, uh, <clears throat> we'll be having a special guest on this week, who I'll come to in a moment. But before that, let me welcome my co-host for the week, player, commentator, analyst, and course architect, Mike Clayton. Clates, welcome to you as always, my friend. Thank you, Rod. Morning. Yeah, and uh, from the UK this week, we're privileged and we're excited to be joined by six-time European Tour winner, now television commentator, and as of a couple of weeks ago, tweeter He's also a good mate of Clates's from back in the day when internet was science fiction and the cost of a phone call from Europe to Australia was roughly equivalent to the airfare. Tony Johnston, great to have you aboard, my friend. Oh, thanks, Rod. Nice to be with you. Yeah, fantastic. And you guys, I know, go back a long way, and I want to get a couple of stories from you about life back in the day a little bit later. Tony, I want to come to you first. Let's deal with some of these issues, these state-of-the-game issues that I mentioned in the intro there. Peter Dawson had this sit-down with selected members of the press last week. Before we chat about um, some of the things that, uh, some of the topics that came up, what's your take on sort of hand-picking various members of the press? I would have thought that's a dangerous practice for somebody like Dawson. He certainly copped it on Twitter from some of the journos who weren't there. Um, all this, how you handle these things public, very important these days, isn't it, Tony? Sure is. I think I think you're right. I think it's a dangerous thing, you know, to handpick guys. It's you know who who are my buddies and who are going to be kind to me. I think if you're gonna if you're gonna have a day like that, a media day, you know, invite all the, the journos, you know, they write the golf blogs for the newspapers, and uh, you know, and get an honest take from everybody, and not uh, just who's going to be gentle with you. Mm, yeah, indeed. Clates, what do you reckon about that? It, it, you leave yourself open, don't you, if you're Peter Dawson, and you start handpicking the journalists. Our old mate Huggy was very unhappy about not being there, and as a consequence, went pretty hard on the questions that weren't asked. Well, Huggy's not going to be any easier on him from now on. <laughs> you wouldn't think so, no. I, I would have thought you'd like to have him in the tent, pissing out than outside <laughs> pissing in, So, as they say. Nicely put. So, um, yeah, clearly it's crazy. I mean, Dawson should be no different from any politician. You stand up and you... You're the spokesman and you speak to everybody that wants to ask a question. Mm. You can't handpick the people you talk to. No, well, you can, I suppose. Tony Abbott handpicks a bit, doesn't he, down here? Doesn't seem he goes on the ABC too often. <laughs> no, look, they all do, Clates, but you you maybe need to be a little more subtle about it to blatantly invite just a select sort of group of yeah. journos in. Uh, he's a dangerous precedent. Let's forget about that for the moment and then let's have a chat about some of the things that they chatted about. Tony, I'll start with you on this one. It gets a lot of press outside of golf, and I think we in golf, when it comes up, kind of go, oh, this old chestnut again. The single-sex golf club, um, politically very sensitive. You get people, high-profile people who've got nothing to do with golf, Every year the Open comes around and we jump on this bandwagon about the single-sex golf club. Does golf need to get involved in gender politics? What's your take on, on how this is? Of course, Augusta let a couple of women in last year, which was all went quite smoothly and was applauded this year. What's your take on the single-sex golf club, whether they should be able to host big tournaments? Well, I think they should. You know, Look, they're not breaking any rules in the UK, single-sex golf clubs. Uh, they're entitled to do it by law. But, you know, I think within the 21st century and, you know, I think single-sex golf clubs, either men-only clubs or women-only clubs, you know, 
they can do what they like, really. But, you know, we've moved into a new era, I think. I think it's time to move on. And, you know, if ladies are prepared to pay the same uh, fees as the men, well, what's wrong with having them as members? You might have to build a different locker room, but, you know, get on with it and let's, let's move ahead. The pressure's coming from outside, Tony, aren't they? It seems to me that at some point in the next decade or two, this will change just because the pressure from outside, as it was with Augusta, becomes too much, distracts from the event itself, uh, and you can't, you just can't have that. And at some point, it's going to be sorted for that reason. That's how it would seem to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think you know, sooner or later, uh, I think you know, single single uh, gender clubs will die out. Uh, you know, but they, that's not just in golf. You know, they have uh, all sorts of clubs in London. They have bridge clubs and gentlemen's clubs. And Clates, where do you do you like to wade into gender politics? I mean, this is pretty explosive stuff. And as I said, we get a lot of people from outside golf. And is this is this an issue? Do you think? And uh, how do you see it playing out? Because it's not going to go away. Muirfield is a single sex golf club. The Open's there this year. We've got a couple of months till it happens. It's going to keep simmering away. Well, it's not an issue in Australia because we don't have single sex clubs, and that's a good thing. I think it's crazy that women are excluded from golf clubs. It's, it's bad for the image of the game. It's, I mean, like, I, I mean, I can't believe that, in a sense, my wife will hate me for this, but it's part of the, women, it's part of the women's fault for putting up with the men who let them do it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, how can you be married to these guys who think it's okay to do that sort of thing? I think it's completely ridiculous. I mean, playing golf with women is actually good fun, mm. if they get it. I mean, women that don't get the game are a pain, but, yeah, I mean, I, I play with Jill Spargo down here, who's on the board of Golf Australia, Gets golf, loves it. She's great fun to play with. So, I mean, women who get golf and understand it are great fun to play with. I don't get why you want to stick with a bunch of, you know, people who think that's okay. And but more importantly, it's terrible for the image of the game because people from the outside just, you know, just perpetrate the myth that you know, it's a game for a bunch of fuddy-duddy old men, and it shouldn't be, and it's not. And it's time that it went. Gonna lose. And that's probably almost the more important thing, isn't it, Clates? Is that 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 it, what it does to the image of the game is terrible, and the fact that we have to keep and we will have to keep talking about it as long as these clubs still are hosting major championships. Dawson said he wouldn't bully clubs into changing their policies. Um, is that fair enough? Well, you can't bully them into it, and it's well take the open away unless you change your. Well, you know. well, well, I suppose it is. I suppose you're saying, "Muir, we're not going to come back until you change a policy," but it's difficult for the RNA given that's a. Men's only club. <laughs> yeah, although the, the 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 governing body now is of course well, separate. didn't didn't work in the with the the race issue in uh, in America in the early nineties, did it, Tony? The the PGA Tour said to certain clubs, well, if you don't have a, a more open policy, we won't come back. And there's a lot of clubs that they haven't gone back to. The clubs haven't changed their policy. They just said you can take your tournament elsewhere. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's probably getting blown a little out of proportion. You know, if I if I was a lady, uh, you get the, you'll get the odd ladies that want to go and join these clubs just to prove a point. But you know, if I felt that unwelcome at a club, really, I just think, well, you know, up yours, and I wouldn't want to be a member there anyway. That's right. Yes. What did what did um, Groucho Marx say? I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would be prepared to have me. <laughs> Something along yeah. along those lines. Let's move on because I, you know that one's going to come up. Over and over and over again. The one that one that really intrigued me this week, Clates, is the oh, we haven't talked about this. The VJ Singh deer antler spray with the human well with the growth hormone in it. Bizarre announcement this morning from the tour. It seems that the World Anti Doping Agency has decided that the the substance is banned, but unless it shows up in a test, you don't need to do anything about it. So essentially, VJ's admitted to taking a substance that was banned through ignorance, uh, and there is absolutely no penalty. What's your take on that, Clates? I don't know. I don't really know the facts. It, it seems ridiculous to me. So it seems like they're squirming around a rule the way Augustus squirmed around the Tiger Woods rule, right or wrong. 
they they got their way around it. Um, More broadly, you know, just, drugs in the game, an issue or not? I don't know. I don't know what the facts are. I suspect there are players who've taken. I mean, Tony's great friend Nicky Price. I know admitted to taking beta blockers for, for a heart condition and, and said it actually hurt his game. But I'm sure there are guys when we played who took beta blockers in an attempt to calm the nerves. And I don't think there are drugs in that you would take. I mean, clearly it's a huge benefit in a 100-meter race to run, you know, a tenth of a second faster, and, and drugs can do that for you. In golf, there's no drug that can make any difference. to It isn't going to make any difference. Hitting the ball one yard further is not going to make any difference to golf, but the drugs that will make the difference in can and would make the difference are drugs that can control your nerves. Mm. So they're the things that we have to keep out of the game. But I suspect, and I'm sure Tony does too, that there are blokes who took them when we were playing. But a beta block is illegal in golf. I'm not sure the answer to that question. Uh, ooh. Now that I don't know about. I, it's certainly not de rigueur to take them anymore. It, it did go through a phase there. Tony, what's your take on that? It's always seemed to me that the whole thing about drugs and golf is I can't think of a drug as apart from what, as Clay says, unless they've come up with something more recently, I can't think of a drug that actually can help you play golf. There's certainly drugs help you recover quicker from injury. There may be a case to be made there that instead of being out for six months, you're only out for two or three, but it doesn't actually directly affect, affect performance in that way, that sort of thing. What's your take about it? Is, is it talked about much? You still sort of lurk around the tour with your TV duties? Is it a topic that the players discuss or is it just a non-issue with them? No, not really. I don't think, you know, I think they have uh, the facility to have randoms drug tests. And, uh, you know, I remember the first the first time they ever announced it at the French Open a number of years ago, they announced that we're going to have random drugs testing the following week. And very mysteriously, 14 guys pulled out. I mean, 14, <laughs> I you know, yeah. you normally get one or two or, but hmm. I mean, that was that, uh, you know, that was the, the, the early days of drugs t- testing. And, you know, I think, you know, things like beta blockers, you know, Nick Price had a heart condition. If it's for, you know, genuine medical grounds, I don't see a problem with it. You know, if it's going to keep a guy competing, as he said, it, he thought it hurt him. But, you know, steroids, I think the guys are, are too sharp now. They're, they're not going to get caught out because these things stay in your system for such a long time. If they get caught, they're going to get banned for a long time. And, you know, as Clay said, you know, the extra couple of yards that I, I would think it would put on you, you know, you're not going to come out like uh, Schwarzenegger you know, after Christmas with muscle bulging everywhere. No. You know, it's going to be too obvious. And, you know, I, I don't think it would help particularly help the game. No, that's always sort of been my sense of it too. There, there, there doesn't seem to be much point to taking it because it's not going to really do much, apart from, as I said, maybe recovering from injury. Well, that one will bubble away as well. But there's a couple of other issues that I did want to talk about uh, that are quite interesting. Tony, I don't know whether you've seen it this morning, but Ted Bishop has made some more comments. The, the president of the PGA of America made more comments this morning about this what was reported, there was a bit of a, a dust-up between he and Peter, Donson, uh, Peter Dawson at Augusta National. Peter Dawson had some things to say in his sit-down about uh, the position that the Tour and the PGA of America had taken over the proposed anchoring ban. Bishop's made some more comments this morning. It's starting to feel like a bit of a war of words developing here. What's your take on what's going on? A, the proposed anchoring ban are you for or against, and then B, how this is playing out publicly. There seems to be a real struggle for power in the game here between the professional and the amateur bodies. Yes, which is a real pity. You know, they've always uh, got on so well. Uh, the RNA and the USGA have always been the rule makers. And, you know, Tim Fincham said that they wouldn't necessarily abide by a ruling made by the USGA and the RNA, which I think is a pity. 
you know, I think it's pressure on him. They had meetings with the players, and you know, I think it's a case of uh, you know putting guys' careers at risk and wanting to keep your job. Basically, if the majority of the players vote for one thing and you go the other way, you know, start looking for a new job. But uh, I think, look, I'm for the anchoring ban, definitely in pro golf. I know bifurcation, as they call it, um, is probably out of the equation. But you know, I don't think that many amateurs really use that long that uh, use the an anchored putter compared to the the, the, the tour. They say that on the US tour, forty percent of guys are now using some kind of anchoring, and I definitely think it's an advantage. And I don't think anything that makes the game you know easier is necessarily a good thing. Mm, well, certainly not at the professional. That's the bizarre thing about it, isn't it, Tony? It's pretty rare. I you know I play a bit of golf around the place. I can't recall ever seeing an amateur playing partner with either a belly or a broomstick putter in the last 20 years. You really don't see it at the amateur. It really is a professional problem, quote-unquote, isn't it? It really is. You know, I, I actually was unaware. We, we got into it a bit on Twitter early in the week with uh, Clayton and a few of the boys, and I got a tweet from one of, from a guy, a member, a member of one of the clubs in the UK, and he said there's 800 members and only two of them mm. use an anchor putter. And I was amazed at that because, you know, we hear these statistics that, you know, maybe 65 or 70 percent of college golfers are being taught to actually use an anchored putter, which, you know, that we have to put an end to. I, to me, being a pro golfer means being able to control your nerves. And the bottom line, you never see really a great putter switch to an anchored putter when he's still putting fantastically. That's the bottom line. Yeah, exactly. And for all the arguments you can make about one way or the other, Clay, so that's a pretty important point, isn't it? It doesn't really seem to have been taken up in the amateur game. Certainly not in the numbers that some in America in particular would have you believe. And those two members that Tony mentions there, I'd be surprised if either of them would give the game away if they uh, if they couldn't anchor the putter anymore. What's your sense of sort of the amateur take? It seems it's a big deal in professional golf because there's a lot of professional golfers use the anchored putter. I don't think it's that big a deal in amateur golf. I'm coming to the conclusion that less and less people are actually interested in it. Yeah, at Metro, uh, well, Metropolitan, I play the, there are a few, there are, there are probably 10 or 15 guys out of 800, I think, who use it. Uh, I would be staggered if any of them gave the game away if you forced them to use a short putter. I just think that's a complete load of bull that people are going to give golf up if they can't play with a long putter. I mean, it's not the, you know, as we've said many times, scoring shouldn't be the point of golf. You're out playing golf, you know, you're hitting shots, playing the course, being with your friends, and if you yip a few putts, who really cares? You know, people get caught up in what they score, and, and that determines whether they play the game or not. They're missing the point of it. So, so no, I, I don't believe that amateurs will give the game up if they ban the long putter. I mean, Ted Bishop would argue that they will, but it would stagger me if someone who truly loved golf would give it up mm. because you made them use a short putter. More importantly, Clates, this sort of rift that seems to be developing, and quite publicly, between particularly the PGA of America. Ted Bishop is very vocal about this stuff. Tim, Tim Fincham is uh, far more circumspect. He's a much cleverer politician, I suspect, in that way. But from the outside, I can't see how it could be good for the game. Can you recall a time when we've had this kind of rift develop so publicly between two of the... I'm sure they've had their differences behind closed doors, but to be doing all this in public uh, doesn't seem to be a good thing for the game, I wouldn't have thought. No, I, I love Dawson's comment when Bishop apparently said at Augusta that it's nothing personal. And Dawson said, well, it's very personal to us and walked off. So, so and I, I, I saw Bishop argue on, there was a quote on Shackleford's site this morning saying that, well, it's typical of the Europeans who put up with what their governments tell them to do. And mm. some bloke came back and said, well, I remember the French Revolution and the, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the, 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 the Cold War finishing and the Berlin Wall coming down. And, you know, people in Europe certainly haven't, just taken what governance has said to them and 
you know, it was a crazy argument from Bishop, but he ran, yeah, that, he ran that line right here on State of the Game too, Clayton. Yeah. which I probably didn't pick him up on, and I should have. But yes, yeah. it does seem a bit silly. I think that um, I mean, I unfairly described the PGA in Australia as a you know, the, the trade union movement of ahead of Mars bar salesmen, <laughs> which is not really fair. No, but it wouldn't you endear know, you to them either. Your membership no, fees probably just no. went up. <laughs> but but stay out of the rules of the game. Yeah. But, you know, because he's arguing, for, you know, he's too conflicted. I think, you know, the, the club pros are arguing about their sales and, and, and making money for their members. I mean, that's got nothing to do with it. I don't think with how the game should be played. Mm, it, it starts to get a bit murky, doesn't it? I thought Peter Dawson said something very interesting, Tony, which was that um, the negotiating table is no place for rulemaking and that's where it now is and that people have taken positions which they are either going to have to maintain or back down from. They're pretty strong words, aren't they? I mean, that's he's essentially sort of saying to Ted Bishop there, bring it on, it sounds like to me. Um, not healthy for the game, though, can it, is it? No, it's not. You know, I think he is. I think he's drawing a line in the sand. Look, we're the rule makers and uh, we're going to make the rules. You know, and, uh, you know how the, uh, the PGA of America and you know, other bodies decide to go will be entirely up to them. But, you know, I have maximum respect for the RNA. You know, they make the odd mistake, yes, but they're only human. But, you know, for what they do for the game and, you know, as custodians of the rules of the game, mm. I think I think they do a brilliant job. They're trying to simplify the rules. Now, you know, they, they, they are forward-looking. Uh, and I think, you know, what, what they say, really, if we, unless we're just going to walk away from the RNA and the USGN and say, look, let's all do our own thing. You know, we've got to abide by what they say. You can see the chaos that could very quickly follow, couldn't you? And I asked Ted Bishop about this, the idea of the PGA having their own rules and how that would work, and I got the sense that perhaps it hadn't been particularly well thought through because the number of issues with that are extraordinary, and who, who then plays by those rules, who decides what those rules are, it just opens a can of worms that I don't think necessarily works for any, particularly when you consider the golf as a, go, a global game, Tony. You're from Zimbabwe, you live in the UK, Mike's from here in Australia, you guys have played together all over the world, and the rules are the same, aren't they? If you don't have that, Professional golf really stands to, to lose a lot, doesn't it? The, the, the rules are the rules. The rules are complicated. You know, the fact that you've got to have a, a decisions book shows how complicated the rules are, but it's a complicated game. Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many variables and scenarios when you're playing outdoors in different conditions, in different weather all the time. That's the nature of the game, and I think that's part of the, the joy of the game. I was you about know, to say, situations. yes. Isn't that part of the appeal? That's right. It's difficult. It's complicated. It's challenging. It's engaging is what it is. It's not It's not tossing paper at a rubbish bin, is it? Which is fairly tedious and uh, and mind-numbing. Well, sir, Dawson actually said, uh, Clates, at, the, uh, at that sit-down he had that you know, they're thinking of ways to try and simplify the rules. Glenn Nager said the same thing last year at the USGA annual general meeting. That's quite intriguing, isn't it? I don't think I've ever heard the, the, the governing bodies suggest that the rules are complicated and need to be simplified. And I imagine at times over the years you've thought that would be a good idea, as most of us have. Well, I speak to John Hopkins a lot, who's the chairman of Golf Australia, who's involved with these guys and knows the rules back to the front. I think the rules are pretty simple. I mean, it's not... I mean, 99.9 .9 times... Well percent of rounds of golf you play nothing ever comes up you mark your ball you know if you're unplayable you drop it two clubbing so go back to where you played it from or you go back on the line if you hit the ball in the water has it it's not that complicated i mean it's it's only when as tony says there are so many scenarios that happen in golf that you've got to cover the weird things that happen and i know one thing that 
John Hopkins was talking about was the Kevin Nass scenario where you get in that mess he got into in Texas last year. And he said, at some point, you ought to be able to just go back to the tee and start the hole again. I mean, Nah couldn't drop that thing anywhere, so he had to just keep hitting it. Mm-hmm. He said, at some point, he should have been able to pick his ball up and go back to the tee and start the hole again. So, so Hoppy talks about scenarios where the rules don't work as well as they should, and that's, what I think, what they're trying to change. But overall, for the number of different scenarios that come up in a round of golf, the rules are pretty simple, really. Because there's no lines in golf, are there, Clates? Which is the, the beautiful thing. In tennis, there are lines. In football, there are lines. Things are either in yeah. or they're out. You don't have that in golf, do you? You've got all these shades of grey, which you've talked about many times as being the great attraction mm. of the game. Yeah. Um, so to try and police that makes it difficult. Gents, I was fascinated to see this week. Uh, I'll come to Tony on this one. Guan Tian. I can never I never pronounce this kid's name. Guan Chanlang, the Chinese kid who made the uh, the cut at the Masters, made the cut again in Louisiana. First things first. How extraordinary is that at 14 years of age, Tony, to be good enough to make the cut on the PGA Tour? It's it's just it beggars belief, to be honest. Mm. You know, somebody put a stat out there this week that Tiger had eight tries uh, before he made his first cut on the PGA Tour. I think at the age of 18 or mm-hmm. whatever it was. But I mean, you know, this kid's 14 and he's made two cuts in a row, one of them being in August. And, you know, he's he's 14. He's, you know, a slender little kid, doesn't hit it anywhere, hitting hybrids and rescues into every par four. And he's out there making cuts. I mean, to me, it's just, it's just absolutely unthinkable that a young kid is capable of doing that. It is mind-boggling, isn't it? But it leads to the immediate next question, Tony. Is 14 too young? Having the ability to do that at his age is impressive, no doubt. But does that mean that it's a healthy thing to be exposed to, oh, good Lord, the Masters uh, and you know, US PGA to a golf? How young is too young, I guess, is the question. Well, look, you know, he's obviously got the ability to be there, but, you know, at least he's got a really good team around him. Uh, you know, his dad travels with him and... But you better have, you better make sure that your kid's got a good team around him and keep his feet uh, grounded, because it's very easy for somebody like him. He seems very uh, sensible and uh, mature for his age, but it's just so easy for somebody at that age. You know, you've got the public adulation and you've got uh, the media attention to 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 just become a prima donna. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope it doesn't happen then. But we've seen it happen. Clades and I have both seen it happen with mm-hmm. youngsters coming out there that are the next Jack Nicholas. And five years down the road, you never hear of them again. And, you know, that would be very, very sad. Mm. Clates, did you, what sort of team did you have around you when you went out to play on tour? <laughs> I assume not in your teenage years. No, no one had a team, really. I mean, it was, you had a caddy and a wife, that was it. And, and well, when Tony and I played, we just had our mates. We just all travelled together and we helped each other with it. You know, if one of us was struggling, we, you know, we always helped each other and played together and, spoke about the game and talked about ways to get better and play better. So that, that was – the team was really just the other guys who played. All, all the Australian guys stuck together. The, the, the South Africans the same, and we kind of mixed a lot together as well. So it was really just your mates were your, was the team, really. Mm. What about a 14-year-old uh, playing in events like this? Can it be – we've seen it. You know, Everybody can trot out the examples in golf. We've had Michelle Wee, Ty Tryon qualified at 17, went through the, the Q school, and neither of them have gone on to fulfil there. But that might have happened anyway, I suppose, Clades. And Lydia Coe feels like a different case to me. She feels a different level of maturity to me and a different sort of stage in life. Is 14 too young to be exposing kids to this, well, this sort of thing? I would have thought so, but doing it occasionally is amazing. But 
I see he's got an invite to the Byron Nelson now, so he's playing again in a couple of weeks. But Lydia Ko is, I mean, he's not one, he's not even close to being one of the best 200 players in the world. Lydia Ko at 15 is one of the best 20 players in the world without any doubt and, and, and probably better than that. Hmm. So it's a much different scenario, but girls mature quicker and play better quicker. As we've seen in tennis, I mean, Capriati was out there at 13 hmm. winning matches. Yeah. So... Lydia Coe is a much different case because, as I said, she is one of the best 20 players in the world. And, and, and I, was, I watched her play the Australian Open at Royal Canberra this year. She made 11 birdies in an eagle, three bogeys, shot 63, and played like, I mean, she missed one shot. It was staggering golf. I mean, the course wasn't that long, but it was long enough. It was 6,000 metres. And it was amazing golf that she plays. Yeah, indeed. And as you say, not only is she one of the best 20 players in the world, she's in fact beaten them all. 19 of yeah. the top 20 in that Canadian Open field when she won last year. And that's a statistic I still struggle to get over at the age of 15. 19. But in fairness, she played with Yanni Sang and she was playing like Ron Tang Lang. She was hitting hybrids when Yanni was hitting nine irons. You know, so she was almost as far back as this kid is with the regular guys on the main tour. But she's pretty deadly with a six iron. Yeah. Pretty deadly with a hybrid. Yeah, she's pretty deadly with and pretty deadly with a putter. There's no doubt about pretty that. Pretty deadly with a putter too. Yeah. There, you alluded to this, Tony. There's far more to it than just being able to hit the ball, isn't there? And I imagine when you go from sort of top amateur golf into professional golf, you go from being in the, the the big fish in the small pond to the small fish in the big pond. It's one of the first things that you notice is that everybody is good, aren't they? There's a lot more to it than just being able to play because everybody at that level can play, can't they? That's a given. Absolutely, no doubt. And, you know, I think in, in some ways, uh, one coming from China, we had a little bit of it uh, coming from Zim or Rhodesia was, as it was in those days. You know, we had a, a tiny golfing community and it turned out the likes of Nick Price, Mark McNaughty, Dennis Watson, myself, Simon Hobday. And the thing is, we were really insulated. We, we didn't have TV in those days. We had no access to golf magazines. So all we really had was our imagination. All we dreamt about was, yeah, I want to play in... You know, I want to play them in uh, tournaments in Europe or play in uh, open championships from that. You know, and when you suddenly get over here and the reality hits you, it's a bit of a shock to the system. And that might be a little bit with, with Guan. Guan, you know, he's been uh, in a fairly insular area of the world when it comes to, you know, golf exposure. And all of a sudden, all this is happening to him. And uh, you wonder when, you know, it, well, I hope it doesn't. But, you know, if, the, if, it's, if it's actually going to kick in sooner or later, geez, what have I actually achieved here? Mm. Well, yeah, it's kind of hard to know because, of course, then the problem is, Tony, what does he go back to? Uh, very hard to go from the Masters, the Byron Nelson, the, the tournament in Louisiana. Where go back and play amateur golf in China sort of seems to be an enormous step backwards. Don't you? you wonder whether you'd still be interested. Exactly right. You know, I mean, he's been put up on a pedestal after these last couple of weeks, which he should be. But, uh, you know, how he copes with it is, is another story. And as you say, you go back to playing with your buddies, you know, after being at Augusta and uh, US tour events, I mean, that's a huge step down. Who does he compete against when he's back there at school? That's, that's exactly right. And, of course, yeah. So uh, it, it sort of seems to me you wonder whether it really is up to the game's authorities to ensure that he doesn't have the opportunity to do that, that you don't get the opportunity to put kids in that. Thing. That's what the LPGA, they had the, the whole issue with Lexi Thompson about that, you know. Once she'd won... Uh, a tournament on the LPJ, you kind of couldn't say no anymore at the age of 16. But there should, seems to me, there should be a ruler that says, unless something extraordinary happens, 14-year-old kids are not teeing up in tournaments. You shouldn't be allowed to just invite them. I'm not sure that that makes a lot of sense. 
um, would be my take, Tony. And this is what I really wanted to talk to the two of you guys about mostly this week. There's obviously state of the game issues always floating around, but uh, don't often get the opportunity to hear a couple of blokes who have been there and done that uh, sort of back in the day, particularly on the European tour. And I'm sure you've got some fabulous stories to tell, Tony. You were just talking about how growing up in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, as it was then, all you had was imagination to learn the game and and imagine what it would be like to play the game at the top level. When you talk imagination, you talk Seve Biasteros, don't you? We're approaching the second anniversary, sadly, of Seve's passing. Uh, I imagine you had much to do with him on the European tour in the 80s and, and 90s. Tell us uh, a couple of memories. Tell us your first memory of Seve and then maybe a couple of uh, couple of memories of sort of playing with him and some of the, perhaps the shots he hits about his golf game and the man himself. Well, you know... We're, when I came onto the European Tour in 1980, and he'd already won an Open Championship, and with 79, he won his first tournament. And uh, the first time I really sort of paid a lot of attention to him was uh, in Scandinavia in 1980. I was travelling with a South African guy by the name of Dave Stratton. We both played early in the morning. Sevi was out in the afternoon, and we thought, well, we better just go and see with this youngsters. You know, the guys won an Open Championship. Let's go and watch. So we walked a few holes with him, and he got up on a par five and pulled his second shot into this par five and it plugged under the back lip of the bunker, but sort of between the soil and the grass and the entire ball was embedded beyond the, the, the edge of the bunker. Hmm. You know, we were standing on the other side of the green and we could see the ball under the lip and thought, my God, it's the worst lie we've ever seen. So we wandered around the green to go and have a look at him. And, uh, you know, he came up there and, he looked at this and he climbed in the bunker and looked under the lip and he thought, well, what's he doing? He's just got a drop. And the next thing he comes out with a sandwich and he gets the sandwich out, Hello. one leg in the bunker, one leg out. And, you know, he starts having a look at this. Then he goes with a, a six iron and a nine iron. I swear he went through the entire bag. And so he's buried under the back lip and the flag is four yards on the green. We thought, well, you know, just drop it. But we're trying to work out where he's going to drop it, in the bunker, out the bunker. And the next thing, it was like one of those cartoon strips where, where the light bulb just goes on in the head. And I swear, he gets his ping putter out, turns it on the toe, sort of has a look over the edge of the bunker, lines it up, and you can see him thinking about this. And there was almost a sort of a slight nod. Yeah, I'm going to have a go at this. The next thing, he makes them the, the wildest swipe at this thing, removes five inches of turf out the edge of the bunker. This ball comes barreling down the bunker, shoots up the far lip, out the bunker, and comes up two feet short of the flag. <laughs> I swear, we, both of us almost passed out. We actually walked in because we just thought this was you know, destroying our confidence for the next 20 years. It was the most, you know, somewhere in uh, in an archive, they'll have that shot. And that is, you know, that to be summed up, Sebi, he invented shots as he went along. I saw him do things, you know, Clayton, I always had good short games, but I saw him do things with a wedge that not Tiger, not Trevino, that no other human being I've ever seen do the things that he could do. He was definitely the greatest golfing genius that was ever born. And, of course, Tony, he himself would have been disappointed to have come up two feet short. He probably tossed the putter <laughs> in anger and disappointment that it was two feet short. Just just careless, you know, not... Uh, <laughs> Not thinking. One of those. One of the things that you said there that really interests me, Tony. I want to get Clates' thoughts on this. Going out to watch Seve as a fellow touring pro, Clates, it would be unthinkable to me that any touring pro, even a rookie in this day and age, would finish their round and go back out on the course to watch someone. Greg Turner told me he used to go out and watch Seve after his rounds as well. I mean, that I can't imagine that happening in the modern day. Were you one that would go out and watch players, Clates, after you'd uh, finished? 
I did a little bit. Well, only Seve. Turner and I spent, we, we went and watched Seve win the Madrid Open. He beat Howard Clark. We played early on the weekend both days and we went out and watched Seve play. And it was, you know, he had shots those two days. I was, you remember the 11th of Porta de Arrow down the hill with the, the, the pin in that tiny back tier? It was a two-iron shot. The pin was right back in the back tier and, the, and there was a bank on the right. And Howard Clark was one of the best ball strikers on the European tour. And he had a, you know, low sort of running two-iron off the bank and came up about 40 feet short. And there's this tiny back tier. And Sebi took this two-iron out and he flew this thing back onto this back tier. It was, it was like he put on an exhibition that weekend that was just... I mean, Turner and I just, you know, as I used to, it's like, you know, you realise that there's a level of golf that you can't even get close to thinking about playing. People say that, you know, all you guys hit the ball the same on the tour. I mean, that's a complete bunch of bull. I mean, you know, Seve made Howard Clark look like a complete artisan that weekend. It was staggering the shots <laughs> he hit. It was into the wind, he would rip the ball lower. The People said he was a bad driver. I mean, seriously, you know, into the wind at nine at Port Air off that high tee, this low ripping you know, things straight through the wind. Tam was downwind, a massive high bomb down the wind. You know, and the crosswind did move the ball around. And I mean, he had crooked drives because he was trying to hit so many different shots. I mean, you know, there were lots of guys who could play like Hale Irwin or Mark James or, you know, the guy, or Antonio Garrido, who just stood, stood on the tee with a driver and just drove the ball straight down the middle of every fairway. But Seve was shaping it and hitting shots that suited the hole and Sure, he hit some wild ones, but boy, what a driver he was. He was amazing, I, remember, I think. I remember Greg Turner telling us, Clates, that when he joined us for the show, it might have been a different interview I'd done with Turner, but I remember he saying, him saying that he'd go out to watch Seve and people would go, oh, he's a bad driver, he misses fairways, but he said, when you watched him carefully, he never missed on the wrong side. No, no. He was always on the correct side of the fairway for the next shot, and so it was you know, more a case of having missed his target by a little bit, but it wasn't a poor drive per se. He'd driven it sort of, uh, sort of where he wanted to. Tony, in that era there, with, you know, as you said, you joined the Tour in 1980, and Seve, was, you know, Seve went on to become huge internationally. What do you remember about those times and, and how golf kind of changed maybe over those five or ten years? You know, we sort of saw the, the first I really saw it was the Tiger thing in 97. He came out, he won the Masters, we had Tiger Mania, and it was just extraordinary to be a part of golf and it was like this rolling snowball of momentum as Tiger just kept doing things and doing things. Was it a bit the same way with Seve, particularly in Europe? Did you sort of feel a sense of bubbling excitement because he was sort of leading golf in a certain way? Oh, no question. And, you know, I should add as well that uh, since I turned pro uh, at the end of 79, Seve was the only pro I ever went out to watch. I mean, he was, you know, if you played in Europe, to answer your question, he was the hero of every single player on tour. You know, he was, I mean, he was our city. You, you could feel it when he walked into a player's lounge, and Clates will attest to this. When he walked into a player's lounge, everybody sort of sat up and it was like somebody had turned a spotlight on him. He just <laughs> felt better. You know, he walked in, through one of those beaming smiles of his, you know, all our wives would start wilting and working <laughs> horrendous. You know, they all go, oh, Chevy, oh, Chevy, shut up, I'm here. And it, it was just amazing, the, the energy that the guy had. And when you played with him, I, I know I certainly, when I played with him, I just played, he just brought out the absolute best in me. Mm -hmm. just, you, know, you just felt supercharged. And he was European golf. I mean, he really was. European golf is where it is because of Chevy and anybody who doubts that. You know, <laughs> he was he was a, he was us. Yeah, it, it always seemed from the outside, and I didn't get to watch a lot of sort of Seve. I wasn't really following golf at the time when you know you'd see him on TV a couple of times a year here. But from every bit of footage you see, there was a childlike love of the game. It seemed from Seve. Did you get that sense 
uh, Tony, that it was just like being a kid again and, wow, can I play this crazy shot with this club that you shouldn't be able to do? Was that was it really that sort of basic, do you think? Yes, I do. I think he just absolutely adored the game. And just to illustrate it very quickly, uh, we played a tournament down at uh, Chepstow at St. Pierre years ago and the hotel was L-shaped with a sort of little chipping green in the middle of the L. And I went down there one evening to chip. We were staying in the hotel and he was there with uh, Manuel Panera. And it was like two little school, school kids. And Panera also, he was an unbelievable wedge player. And these two guys were at it, having little competitions. And eventually Panera said to him, okay, play this one now. And he stomped the ball sort of, you know, a quarter into the ground and said to Sidney, right, play that one now and see how close you can get it. And I swear, he played the shot. It defied physics. It came out, landed, and on sort of about the third or fourth bounce, it actually stopped dead physics. You know, every... Golper out there knows it's going to come out with massive topspin. Panero then gave it another one and stomped it a third of the way into the deck, and he did the same thing. And they were laughing and joking, and it was it was like two little school kids. He just loved the game. You know, it was his life. Yeah, fantastic. Clades, I'm sure you probably remember that sort of stuff. It strikes me to listen to that. Tiger used to have that, but that that's maybe what the big change has been in the last seven or six or seven years, probably, with Tiger Clades. He used to seem to have some of that childlike joy that Seve displayed, but... He's still an amazing golfer, physically talented. But he doesn't seem to have that childlike joy anymore, it would seem to me. I don't know. I think he still loves to – I mean, you would have to love to play the game if you played it like him. But, yeah, I, I think Tiger seems like he's, you know, he's built this kind of bubble around him. That, I mean, Seve never did that. Seve was just in the locker room and he, he was just kind of one of the guys. I mean, he was kind of one of the guys in one sense, but he wasn't mm. in, in another because he was so much better. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Tiger's always just in this kind of security guise and you know, it's, just, it's just this crazy bubble that he lives in that, you know, I sometimes think is almost self-imposed and self-made. Then you start complaining about it because you don't have a life. I mean, Sevi never complained about it. You know, I think Sevi complained about, in a sense, he probably complained about the pressure every week because he was the main guy every single week and there's always pressure on your game to perform and you know, we could slunk away and miss a cut and no one noticed. But... You know, Seve played poorly. That you know, he felt like I, I think he let the spectators down and the sponsors down. But uh, he, he had a staggeringly high level of performance every week, and I think that probably, you know, goes back to that the, the, the kid at fourteen. You know, you know, I think Seve started out so young. He he was the main star on the tour from that week. He was runner up at the Open in '76. He was the main star out there for you know until the early 90s, that's pretty wearing with that pressure on you every week to go out and perform and be the main guy. And he carried the tour with, in fairness, Feldo and Langer and Lyle and um, was he. But, but he was the main guy and that pressure was on him every week to carry the tour and keep the sponsors happy and to drag the crowds and to play well. And he, he had to keep his game at a really high level for a long time. And I think in the end, obviously, I we really both saw it. We all saw it. How, how in the end he was worn out and tired of it and he lost his game. And it was really, it was really sad to see in the end. But I just think that was a product of so much pressure and for so long being the main guy and being the star. And it just wore him out in the end. He was tired of it in the end, which was really sad to see. But boy, what, you know, as you've all said, he, I, I watched him play the 78 PGA at Royal Melbourne, which was, of course, Mackenzie course. Mackenzie would have adored the way Seve played he loved watching Hagen play golf back in the 20s and Seve played with that flair and Mackenzie built courses that brought out that sort of game. You had space to play from the tee. You had to hit great iron shots. You had to really think about what you were doing. It brought out the best in someone's short game because it demanded it. 
And, and McKenzie would have loved the way Seve played. I, I got to watch him as a kid. 1978, he was 21 at Royal Melbourne. I watched, I probably didn't watch 72 holes, but I watched 68 of them. And he was playing with Jim Simon, so it was going pretty slowly. But, <laughs> you know, you know yeah. again, you can still remember the shots he hit. I mean, he's sort of in that, the 10th on the West course, the 8th on the composite, which is the 6th on the President's Cup course, which is another confusing question. <laughs> you um, go, yeah. you know, and Hale Erwin and Marshy and everyone else stood there and bumped a tour on up to the corner. And here he was, into the wind, 265, 70-yard carry across that sandy waste there. And he took the driver out every day and just smashed it up at the green, up into that sand around the green. He made three birdies in a par. And it was just, it was so much fun to watch. And I can still see him doing it. It's 30 years later, 35 years later. You can still see him standing on that tee. If he'd pulled an iron out, I swear the crowd would have booed him. Like, you know, <laughs> he probably but, knew that but, too. <laughs> boy, he was and, of course, Royal Melbourne and Augusta and St Andrews, I've written this many times, that, that they were the three courses Mackenzie loved. The, well, well the, the two best courses he ever built and, and the course he loved the most. There's only one bloke who's won on those three courses, Seve Ballesteros, and... The, yeah, that, that's it's a bigger question, but that's what we miss in golf courses. And I think is that people have gotten away from you know, certainly the PGA Tour in America and in Europe have gotten away from because they're trying to constrict the ball. They don't make these narrow fairways and they force people to play, as Mackenzie said, tight defensive golf, and it's no fun to watch. No. I mean, Seve never played tight defensive golf, and and Mackenzie, if he came back, would say, "Let these guys play." I mean, I mean, no one lets them play anymore. Mm. So. We're almost stopping guys playing like Ballesteros because of the way we set golf courses up. Mm. You touched on something there, Clates, and you mentioned this last week too, and I, I wanted to ask you about it because I had to listen back to the, the show from last week or the week before uh, after the Masters. You mentioned Adam Scott winning at Kingston Heath. What a beautiful thing it was. There is something special, isn't there, when a game like Seve's or a game like Tiger's meets a golf course that is just tailor-made for that style of play. It is. It's almost like the best violin in the world coming together with the, the best violinist. The, the two things yeah. together make something truly special. Yeah, it, it does. So, uh, you know, there's not much interest in watching Tiger Woods play a you know, narrow golf course because it, it makes him look like he's playing poorly. He's always in the rough and he's slashing out of the rough. You, you watch Tiger play at Augusta or St Andrews or at Royal Melbourne and he looks like he's playing well because he's got some space. Mm. And, and, and hitting amazing shots because of it. Some of the shots yeah. he hit at Kingston Heath in – you know, no, and just before it all fell apart, were truly staggering. Well, I mean, you watch, he played a sort of thirty-yard bunker shot. I saw there one. He was in the worst possible spot you could be, but he hit it to about six feet. It was an impossible yeah. golf shot, yeah. Yeah. Um, but allowed to do it, as you say, because uh, because I think Tony golf has obviously changed a lot uh, since nineteen eighty when you turned professional. Uh, has it generally been for the better or the worse? Do you think what what's better about golf in twenty thirteen than nineteen eighty professional golf, and what's worse about it in twenty thirteen? Well, you know, there are things that are better. If you're a tour pro, you know, the we, money we for a start. <laughs> well, the money for a start, but you know, that's that's ongoing. You know, guys like Dennis Hutchinson, who's the sort of guru of golf in South Africa, he, he tells us about when he used to come over to Europe and play in tournaments in you know the, the early 60s and he'd win 14 pounds and you know that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, you could buy two, two cars for 14 pounds, he never mentions that, but uh, you know, things that we used to uh, just the stuff we used to have to take with us, we used to take. A bag of practice balls with us. In those days, it was the old measuring wheels in the, in the 80s, later in the 80s. So you had this huge bag with your measuring wheel to do your yardages. And, you know, there was no, there were no uh, courtesy cars. It was buses and trains and taxis. So, I mean, these guys these days, they have a wonderful life out there. They get treated like kings. 
And, uh, you know, maybe not always for the best, though, because they have their team. They have their manager. They have their physio. They have their sports psychologist. They have this guy. They have that guy. You know, Darren, there was a great story about Darren Clark with uh, his late wife, Heather. The one day he said to her, you know, have you seen my letter open? And she said, Darren, I think you might have fired him. (laughs) (laughs) I'd not heard that. That's fantastic. (laughs) That's literally how it is. These guys have this huge team of people around them and sort of lose the sense of reality. We had, as Clay said earlier, you had, you know, if, if your wife came on tour until the kiddies came along and then you were out there on your own, uh, but you had your buddies. You know, Clayton and I, we would go and play practice rounds. We'd have dinners together with the South Africans and the Aussies and the Europeans. We'd all mix. You'd stay in two or three hotels. Everybody would mix. You'd have buses to the course, so you'd all be together. And it, it was really like, you know, it was like an extended family. And we used to have serious amounts of fun and i just don't see that anymore and i think that's that's where the game is uh, you know has lost a lot of its flavor mm. as a spectator sport tony do you think that that changes the attitude of the players and the life that they're living does that change the what you get to see as a spectator it seems to me that golfers who are a bit hungry um you know i mean you can finish 115th on the money list in the u.s and afford to have a team around you. That's how much money is involved. And 700000 I think, to keep your card last year. That's a lot of money to make in a year. That's does a it, lot of money. Does it change the way, leaving aside the course, does it change the way the players actually play and approach the game when they're a little bit hungry? Is it a better game when players sort of need to play better um, as opposed to they can afford to spend a year working on a swing change or something, you know? Well, you know, a lot of people have said to me, because, you know, in my mind, Every week on the European tour, certainly on the on the final day, out of the top ten guys, eighteen guys are or eight eight of the guys out there are going to need oxygen. You know, it looks like they're trying to protect the score, mm-hmm. and they're thinking about uh, you know not costing themselves money. And people say, oh well, you know, it's because there's so much money on offer. But you know, hang on a second. You know, in the days in the early '80s, you know, there was very little money. We were all skint, and you know, we we paid our bills by trying to earn a living as well. But when you came down the home stretch, I don't know any guy from our era that when he came down the home stretch leading a tournament or in contention, was thinking about, ooh, you know, how much of a check am I going to earn this week? You went out there and your, your sole intention was win. Tiger's never gone out there, even, you know, when he first came on tour, thinking about money. You know, you, you're going out there to be a winner. And I don't know where the, the, the changes come in the mindset, but... It always looks to me on Sunday like guys are thinking about points and earnings and money, and maybe it is because there's too much money. I, I don't know, but uh, what you did know, you in think my about, mind... What did you think about, Tony? You won six times. What did you think about when you were in that on, on Sunday? Were you thinking about money? Were you thinking about just beating the guy next to you? What, what went through your mind? Just winning. I mean, that's all you thought about. You know, obviously, in the, in the back of your mind, in your subconscious, you knew that if you won, the money was going to follow, but... Uh, you know, I can genuinely say, you know, even early days in my career when I, when I was skipped, we all were. Uh, you know, there were no huge sponsorships. When you came down the home stretch, all you were thinking about was the trophy. That was, that was your prime concern and beating everybody else in the field. And I think, I do think that's been lost in, mm. to a certain degree. Yeah, I, I think I tend to agree. Now, uh, Clates has just very surreptitiously sent me a little message. He wants me to ask you about Greg Norman on the first tee at the Italian Open. <laughs> what's he talking about? Are you still with us, Clay? We haven't oh, lost you, have we? Yeah, I'm there. Oh, yeah. good, yeah, yeah. What, what's he talking about there? I, I get the sense this might be a good story. This is a great story. Oh, this is a beauty. 
This was a beauty. Uh, we were playing in the Italian Open at a course called Aqua Santa, and it was my second tournament on the European Tour in 1980. I think I'd made the cut the week before. We still had uh, pre-qualifying in those days. So I qualified for the next event, made the cut on the number. I thought, oh, you know, this life is sweet, man. I earned about 300 pounds last week. I'm going to be a millionaire any minute. <laughs> so I'm looking, I'm standing with my buddy John Bland, who I traveled with for 16 years, and he's looking at the draw sheet, and I'm in like the third group out or something. And I said, who is this guy here, this G Norman from Australia? And he looked at me, you know, like I'd just come from a different planet. He said, Greg Norman, the young Aussie, the superstar. What are you talking about? He says, you know, you really are just a, a complete bush baby bum from Bulaway and Zimbabwe. He says, you're an idiot. This guy's a superstar. I said, well, he can't be that, but I don't really <laughs> So off we go. The next day we, we tee off. And the first hole was a short par four with about 270 to the front edge with a ditch right in front of the green. So we were all hitting two irons down there, leaving ourselves, you know, a nice little flick in. So I've nudged my two iron down there, and here comes this boy with a three-wood on the tee, you know, this big blonde bomb. And I thought, this young know, this guy, this guy's a, he's a complete fairy. He's playing up with a three-wood. What's he doing? The next thing, up he gets with this. I can I remember the, I actually remember the club. It was like a purple-headed Tommy Armour. And he hits this thing, and it just makes a different sound, the way Norman's drives did. And it just takes off like a gunshot. And I'm watching this thing. I think, what is this guy doing? The green was probably no more than 18 yards deep and he flies it on the green, bang, 15 feet. And I'm just staggered. Oh my God, what's this going to be happening? Anyway, I sort of chunk it on, make my fall. He rolls it in for two. Well, you know, Blandy's right. This guy's not that bad. We get up on the second hole, par three, slam dunks it for a one. I swear, straight in the hole for a one. And I'm jumping around. The, you know, I'm the new boy and I'm hopping around and shaking, well, well done. And, and he sort of looked at me and I was like, calm down. You know, this is sort of an everyday event for me. <laughs> and I just ground my heart out for 70. We just made the cut. And he, to be honest, he wasn't overly interested. He looked a little bit bored to be there. And he just blew it around. I think he blew it around in 65 or 64 and just jumped into, up into the top five. It was, it was you know, as I walked off the course, Blandy was just sitting there with a smile. And as I walked past him with my scorecard, he says, now do you know who Greg Norman is? <laughs> it, was, it was quite a shock to the system. Welcome to the European Tour, boys. <laughs> uh, I wonder, Tony, whether Greg Norman still remembers Tony Johnston in that day that you played together. I wonder whether he remembers it uh, <laughs> as fondly as you do. Clates, what about the first time you played with someone that made your head turn when you heard the sound? You hadn't been expecting it. Because, I mean, that's... That's quite remarkable. To, to not know who you're playing, you step on the first team, they do something like that. As a fellow professional, you start thinking, wow, I'm in a different sort of league here. Did that have happened to you, Clates, where you sort of stood there and went, who's this kid? Uh, well, it happened to me when I was 40 years old. I played with Adam Scott at Cranbourne. We've told that story before. When he <laughs> yeah. snapped, obviously, you probably haven't heard this story. We played with Adam Scott and the guy playing with had never heard of him. And I said, I've seen his picture in a magazine. I think he's a pretty good player. And he got in the first time, the most wicked snap hook you'd ever seen, short par five. Most wicked snap hook ever. And he tried to chip it out and he's club at the tree and he finished up one putting for a six. And I'm I guess he's not that good. He buried the next five holes like it was like falling off a tree. You can't imagine how easy it was. It was like 64. So, so that was really that. That was almost, you know, it was bizarre that it happened actually when I was quite old. But that, that was the one time I, I can remember being astounded by a kid who was just like, wow, this guy's amazing. Mm, different game. But, mm. Well, I mean, I. I first saw Greg Norman play in 1974 at the Junior Interstate Series, the team's matches. 
he played for Queensland and one of the guys in our team said, you have to go and watch this Norman play. He's incredible. And he had this tiny strata blockhead, Jack Nicholas driver with a small ball. And, you, you know, if you thought he was long in 1980, you want to see him in 1974 with a small ball. I mean, he was massive how far he hit it. And he was clearly miles better than anyone else then. And, you know, so that was the first time I saw Greg play. He was astounding, really, how far he hit it and how good he was. For a guy who'd only been playing golf three or four years at that point, right, yeah. you know, you know he, he hadn't been playing very long, but yeah, great talent. What's that about? Yeah, just a, just a, a, a natural aptitude. Clay, you said something on that last episode that I wanted to ask you about and get you to tease out. You said, sometimes you can, what did you say? You can, you can hit the ball well and not play well. You can play well without hitting the ball well. What were you talking about with there? When I listened back to it, I thought, I'm not sure I'm following what you're talking about. Well, said, well, well, people say, I played great. And, but I shot 75. Well, no, you played terribly. You might have hit the ball well, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an obvious distinction between hitting the ball well and playing well. Playing well is playing the game well, which is getting the ball in the hole for the fewest number of shots you can. So if you hit the ball great or, re- or really well and shoot 75, you might have hit the ball well, but you've played terribly. And, and, and you can hit the ball terribly and play incredibly well. Obviously, we've all seen guys who've shot 68, scunging it around without barely hitting a good shot. Well, I'm sure they've hit the ball poorly, but they've played a great round of golf. So hitting the ball well and playing well are two completely different things. Of course, when you hit the ball well and you play well, then you shoot 66 and you win tournaments. But there are lots of guys who, you know, this thing about I hit, you know, I played great. Well, come on, you shot 75. You played terribly. You might have hit the ball well, but you played terribly. You, you, you played the game terribly. You'd get on well with Bruce Young, Clay. He's got a, a pet hate about players saying, I played great but putted well, poorly. Yeah. He said, well, if you putted yeah. poorly, you didn't play You didn't play great. Yeah. So does, that all, yeah. does that all make sense to you, Tony? And what is this nickname that Clay keeps calling you? What is it, Clay? What do you call him? Oh, well, you have to get him to tell the story about that one. That, that, that's a legendary story. I thought there might be a story. What, yeah. what is the nickname and what's the story behind it, Tony? Uh, my nickname's Ovi's. I mean, that's, that's been my nickname since I was about nine. My wife's never called me anything else. My dad used to call me Ovi's. My first proper junior competition I ever played in in uh, the golf club in, in Bulawayo, in my hometown. Uh, at our local, at the course that I played out in, out in the sticks, we had uh, uh, telegraph wires going over the course. I and mean, anything you hit on the course that shouldn't have been there because it was a bit of a goat track. Uh, you got a free replay. So I'm now, uh, I think I'm 11 years old, uh, and I'm playing with a guy by the name of Peter Kriath, uh, who was 18, just about to leave the junior ranks, six foot six, and uh, off we go. And I mean, I basically came up to his belt line. We get up on the, the, this, par, this par five, and I have absolutely welted three of my best wood shots. And, you know, junior competition, nobody really cares. And there's a guy out mowing the lawn, uh, mowing the green. My ball hits the mower flush and just vanishes off into the woods. You know, and I said, well, you know, obviously I get a replay. And he said, well, no, you know, that's the rub of the green. I said, no, I get a replay. No, you know, anyway, it ends up, I was always a bit of a hothead. It ends up with him holding me by the head at arm's length with me windmilling trying to hit this guy. And honest to God, I wasn't above his belly button. Are you trying to cheat me? You trying to cheat me? And he was crying, laughing. We got into the golf club, and the first thing he walked in, he said, "This guy's a nut job." He says, "You know, he hits a he gets a hits a mower, and he, all he can talk about is overs. He's trying to hit me." He says, "This midget's trying to hit me," and it was the funniest thing, and it stuck from there on. And whenever I, I used to see him at a tournament uh, there 
after once I became a pro, he'd be behind the ropes, and as soon as he caught my eye, he'd just hold his hand out in front of him. We'd both just crack up laughing. <laughs> Ovis have been ever since, and I mean, most of my buddies have never known me as anything else. So Ovis, O-V-E-R-S, there you go. <laughs> that's, that's fabulous. How many years has that been now? 40-something years you've been known as... As oh, yeah, since, since, since I was 11. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> 45. That's, that's fantastic stuff. Tony, obviously, it's been a good life and a career. You do the TV commentary now. How do you how do you find that as opposed to being out there playing? I mean, to win six times in Europe, twice on the European Senior Tour, you're obviously pretty competitive. How do you find being cooped up in the TV booth? Uh, to be honest, I absolutely love it. Um, you know, I mean, competing is still my first love, uh, but I haven't been very competitive the last couple of years. Game, has, game hasn't been great, but, uh, you know, to be able to go out and talk absolute bollocks and get paid for it when it comes so naturally it's just a wonderful thing it's a wonderful thing <laughs> but no genuinely I, I i really enjoy the commentary uh people don't believe you though you know when you on the weekends i work mainly for sky i'm going to be doing some more for the world feed now so you might be able to use your mute button when you hear me in aussie next week <laughs> but um you know four hours of straight commentary when there's two of you is way way more tiring than the tournament round. Yeah. seriously it sounds like rubbish just sitting there talking but you know you you know what it's like you've got three or four voices in your ear you've got monitors and tvs and computers and uh it is tiring but we are really really enjoy it yeah. there's no downtime in the commentary booth is there when you're on the course you walk between shots you can switch off you can't do that in the commentary you're on the whole time and We've all seen what happens when commentators lose their concentration and say something they shouldn't, Tony. It's a very quick way to lose your job uh, when that happens. It's been fantastic to chat with you, Tony, and I reckon there's a million more stories that I might get you and Clates to tell. We'll have to have you back one day. Have you enjoyed it, and will you come back? They're the two important questions. I've enjoyed it thoroughly, and I'll be back anytime you invite me right. to. We might, we might start a storytelling episode sort of once every six months, Clates, do you reckon? And you can find the characters that you can remember from sort of the 80s playing the tour, and we'll get them to come along and just tell great stories about how golf used to be. I think that would be a bit of fun. Well, we've missed the great story, the great uh, Seve Ballester, Tony Johnson, it's your ball, Seve, story. Oh, Do we have time for one more? Yes, of course we've got time for one more. One, one more, come on. <laughs> oh, this, this was a beauty. Uh, I mean, we, we used to uh, spar with each other a lot. I, I always loved Sebi's sense of humour. You know, he had his strange quirks, but, uh, you know, I, I, just, I just loved the guy. So we're playing in a, a golf day in Holland at a, at a course called Kenema. So it, it wasn't a tournament. People think it was getting confused with a tournament. It was just a, a corporate day. But there are four of us playing, and they've got buggies with microphones on and interviewing players between shots. And we get up on this one hole, which is a slight blind tee shot. We both hit irons off the tee, both push it slightly. So st- they stop Sebi to have a chat to the crowd, you know, with the, the, the buggy on the mic, the mic on the buggy, I should say. And off I go, and I wander off and go and have a look uh, for my ball. So I get down and there's two balls. There's one tiny little tree about four inches wide and there's a ball absolutely stone dead right up against the trunk. And there's another one five yards further on, perfect line. So I have a look and the next thing, Seve comes wandering over the hill. So you know, I've, I've got a club in my hand and as he gets about 15 yards away, I put my club behind the ball and there's a sprinkler about three yards behind me. So I stretch out as far as I can with my right leg and I said, Seve, if I'm standing on the sprinkler, do I get a free drop? He said, no, 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 no. Oh, no, only a natural, natural stance only. I said, oh, but what about if I go with the left leg and I do the same thing? He says, no, I tell you, natural stance only, eh? I said, okay, are you sure? He says, I'm absolutely sure. 
I said, well, that's a good thing because that's your ball and that's mine with a perfect lie up there. <laughs> you know, Tony, I reckon I've heard that story twice. I didn't know that was you. To hear it from the man himself, that's fantastic. How was Sevy's reaction to that? He probably hit something brilliant, didn't he, just to shut you up? Well, you know what? I mean, the, the, we never get to the end of the story, but he says, okay, I just chip it out. So he chips it out sideways, knocks it onto about 25 feet. I hit a wedge on, hit it into 30 feet. I three whack. He holds the putt. <laughs> no surprise. As he walks off the green, I can't, I can't use the exact language yet he used, but he just walked past and without even looking, he sides up and he says, see what happened when you mess with Sebi. And he off he goes. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Clates, how would you have gone on the golf course with microphones on the buggies? Well, might have been a great. short career, mightn't it? Yeah, we're a short career, yeah. <laughs> well, me and plenty of others. <laughs> the game can drive you to use the odd bit of profanity. There's no doubt about that. Tony, it has been fantastic to have you, and I reckon there's a million more stories. Clates, we will get that storytelling idea going uh, at some point. But for today, let's wrap it up. Tony Johnston uh, joining us from the UK there. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Rod. Enjoyed it. Fantastic. And Clates, always good to have you aboard, and uh, great to hear you reminiscing about the old days with uh, with Overs, your old mate from the European well, Tour. Uh, thanks Rod thanks Thank Ivy's enjoyed it and that wraps it up for State of the Game episode fun. 21 yes good fun indeed Tony we'll be back again to do it all again in the next couple of weeks looking forward to that looking forward to your company then on State of the Game State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production theme music Writer's Retreat provided by Lloyd Cole visit www.lloydcole.com for more information for more golf podcasts log on to www.talkandgolf.com